This is Macro Horizons, episode 137, The Fall Stumble, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 13th. That's right, Monday the 13th. Possibly even more troubling because at least Friday has Friday going for it. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had a very specific reaction to a series of economic data releases that has brought into question the forward path of rates, specifically the weaker-than-expected August non-farm payrolls print on the Friday before Labor Day weekend triggered a bear steepening that was carried through to Tuesday. What's notable, however, is that buying interest eventually emerged before 10-year yields got above the 138 to 140 range. That was subsequently then furthered at the 10-year reopening auction with a notably strong 1.4 basis point stop through, as well as outpaced demand from the indirect bidding subcategory. Now, while this doesn't necessarily translate through to overseas interest per se, we won't have that information for a couple weeks. The assumption is that the strong demand for the 10-year auction was a function of overseas interest at this moment. This speaks to the idea that, at least in part, what is setting the outright level for Treasury yields has to do with the pace of the global recovery and foreign demand for Treasuries, as opposed to simply the domestic performance as the real economy works its way out of the pandemic. Our stance has long been that the outright level of Treasury yields is far less about supply and demand and more a function of the macro narrative. This was reinforced via the strong 10-year auction, but also in the performance of the Treasury market in the wake of the pandemic. If we were having this discussion in the 80s or 90s, we would make the point that it's less about the Treasury's borrowing needs per se than it is the domestic growth and inflation outlook that really sets the tone for 10- and 30-year yields. Today, in 2021, it has become increasingly evident that not only does Treasury issuance and net supply take a distant second seat to the macro narrative, but the focus of the macro narrative has expanded from being simply U.S. or domestically focused to now encompassing the global outlook. This is due in part to decades of globalization of the real economy, but it can also be attributed to globalization of ownership of treasuries. When we deconstruct who the largest outright owners of treasuries are, the top three remain the Fed, Japan, and China. 
trade flows as well as the expectation for comparative economic performance continue to be instrumental in trading treasuries, as does the uncertainty created by the pandemic. Well, Ian, coming into this week, we saw what was a pretty meaningful extension of that post-NFP bear steepening. It was counterintuitive on Friday afternoon and even more counterintuitive on Tuesday morning coming back from the long weekend. Well, it's only counterintuitive insofar as one simply wouldn't expect a 500,000 job miss in non-farm payrolls to translate through to a bear steepening in the treasury market. However, if we think about the way that the market has behaved over the course of 2021, we have a variety of episodes that we can point to where the economic data hasn't been tradable in the traditional fashion. Q1 is an obvious example. Regardless of how the data was printing, we continued to push forward with a cheaper and steeper narrative. That managed to run its course into the second quarter when we saw even strong data met by a drift lower in rates as overseas investors, particularly the Japanese, returned to treasuries, and that started a bull flattening that ran throughout the bulk of the quarter. The next inflection point came following the June FOMC meeting when the market's perception of the Fed's commitment to the new framework was questioned following the increase in the 2023 dots. Fast forward to the August non-farm payroll print, and what we saw was a disappointing jobs number that will make it very difficult for the Fed to pull forward the liftoff rate hike, while at the same time, a higher-than-expected average hourly earnings print, which will keep the Fed largely on track to taper by the end of the year. And this gets at a dynamic that we've seen before, which is a little bit of that bad news is good, insofar as it implies the Fed is going to be more patient on the journey towards normalization. We heard from Bostic over this past week stating explicitly that, that the incoming data has been underwhelming enough as to maybe warrant the Fed rethinking its timeline on tapering. Now, that certainly doesn't mean an acceleration, but it is a critical aspect to consider in contemplating when the Fed will ultimately announce tapering. The August jobs report makes a September announcement much less likely and really now leaves the focus on November or December. And when we contemplate whether or not the Fed will be willing to move forward with tapering at the November meeting, it's worth noting that in the interim, the Fed will only have one more employment report. And while we'll see updates on the inflation front, jobs just became a greater question mark in the wake of non-farm payrolls. And this brings up the question of what really would it take on the jobs front for the Fed to announce or not announce tapering at the November meeting? It's fair to say that another disappointment on the scale that we saw in August would be sufficient to inspire a fairly serious conversation on the committee about whether it's warranted to begin pulling back on bond buying just yet. And getting back to that bad news is good dynamic, another big miss on jobs will likely manifest in a repeat performance of that bear steepener we saw late last week and early this week. That's an interesting point, Ben. It's not entirely clear to me that it would be a repeat of the bear steepener. If for no other reason than the bear steepening that followed the August non-farm payroll print was really relatively short-lived. We only got 10-year yields back close to 140, a bit shy actually, and then we subsequently rallied into 
the 10-year auction, which stopped through with strong indirect bidding. And if nothing else can be taken away from the experience, it's that the range trading momentum remains very strong in the treasury market. And especially in this current environment, the influence of more short-term factors like supply have been instrumental in determining the scale of the reactions we've seen to some of the economic fundamentals. We've been talking about this idea that rates have entered this regime where the data is mattering less than it once did, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter at all. And this past week was a great example of the knee-jerk move being inspired by the jobs data, but then it was ultimately the 10-year reopening that saw that price action extended until once again, dip buyers stepped in at marginally higher yields. Demand emerging at levels below 140.10s suggests to me at least that it's going to be unlikely we re-challenge that 177 yield high before the end of the year. At this point, there does seem to be very little question that we're going to be in a lower rate range for much longer than the market was anticipating at the beginning of the year. And I think that this is only reinforced by not only the Fed teeing up tapering in the fourth quarter, but also the ECB following through with their planned reduction of bond purchases. Still, we find ourselves in an environment where 10-year real yields are extremely negative. The break-even curve shows that there is plenty of reflation already priced into the market, and the real economy continues to struggle to move past the pandemic. And that brings us to the main event this week, which is Tuesday's CPI data. The August inflation report is going to be especially intriguing following the jobs numbers, if only given the rising concern about stagflation risk and that higher prices are eroding confidence and eroding a willingness to consume, which in turn is dragging on the recovery. Within the details of CPI, clearly auto prices are going to be an area of focus, in addition to those pandemic-specific pockets of rising prices and airfares and things like lodging away from home. But remember, within the August non-farm payroll series, we saw flat hiring in leisure and hospitality. So that begs the question of whether that was a function of diminished demand in those categories or if prices there are still on the rise. Let us also not forget that within the core CPI series, OER, or owner's equivalent rent, is expected to be trending higher in the second half of this year, primarily because of the run-up in housing prices seen during the pandemic. The passing of the reflationary baton from transitory factors to shelter costs is largely assumed at this point, and I suspect that its actualization won't be a tradable event, at least not insofar as perpetuating a bear steepener in treasuries. It might contribute to the upward pressure that we have seen in break-evens, which again puts downward pressure on real yields because implicitly it has become a growth story at this point in the cycle. So does that suggest that if we are going to see 10-year yields move beyond that 142 level back toward 160 by the end of the year, that's going to have to be a growth story, not an inflation one? If for no other reason, then it's clear that any further inflation from here is going to undermine the prospects for consumption and function more as a tax on spending rather than be the type of organically driven inflation that the Fed would characterize as a sign of a healthy and potentially overheating economy. 
When we think about the wage pressures already seen in the U.S. economy, what remains as a primary unknown is what happens during the month of September after the enhanced unemployment benefits expire and workers need to adjust to reduced income, either by slowing consumption, spending down savings, or going back to work. And in addition to CPI, we also get August's retail sales data on Thursday, which is going to be especially informative on exactly that dynamic. How willing have domestic households been to continue spending in an environment where we've seen reasonable wage gains? And more importantly, what did spending look like as we reached the point when the pandemic-related unemployment benefits began to expire? We often talk about the departure point mattering in yield terms, but I also think it applies to the spending landscape as well. You're certainly right in that regard, Ben. And as we have seen a variety of forecasts for growth in the third quarter continue to be revised lower and lower, it does bring into question, will the U.S. economy be able to meet the Fed's objective of 7% growth in 2021? It's difficult at this point to suggest that it's a foregone conclusion that the Fed's objective will be reached. More nuanced to the discussion as we think about how this applies to U.S. rates is what happens if growth undershoots. It's been communicated that the Fed really wants to get out of perpetual QE and commence tapering, level off the balance sheet, and move forward to a discussion around the liftoff rate hike. But in the event of a disappointing second half in terms of growth and presumably employment as well, If nothing else, that should push out the first rate hike well into the middle of 2023. And clearly the tapering discussion is going to be significant at the September meeting, but we also do get a revised SEP and dot plot on the Fed's formal projections about where they see policy rates in 2022, 2023, and for the first time, 2024. Remember in June, that 50 basis points of policy tightening in 2023 was a bit of a surprise, but since then, We've now seen the Delta variant come in as a meaningful headwind to the recovery, in addition to some fiscal stimulus beginning to run its course. So to me, that suggests that the bar for another quote-unquote hawkish surprise in the SEP is quite high, but it will nonetheless be interesting to see how committee members' expectations on policy rates have shifted over the past several months. On the political front, we also recently heard from Secretary Yellen about the prospects for the Treasury Department to run out of cash by the end of October, give or take. We all know that this is a moving target with a number of different factors, not least of which being tax receipts. Nonetheless, by reminding Congress of the urgency in terms of the federal coffers, it has placed the debt ceiling issue back on the radar of market participants. And if history is any guide, the most likely scenario is going to be that a technical default is avoided, but that's not going to prevent Congress from waiting until the 11th hour to either suspend or raise the debt ceiling. So in practical terms, that's going to continue to put downward pressure on funding costs and bill yields, while also keeping usage at the RRP facility very elevated. Over $1 trillion in cash a day being parked at the Fed receiving five basis points has now definitively become the new normal. And even after bill issuance can normalize once the debt ceiling issue is behind us, it's certainly not a foregone conclusion that we'll see a meaningful retracement there, just given the massive amount of cash that remains in the system. That's a very fair point, Ben. And you also make the observation about the 11th hour in Washington. And that really does beg the question, why does everything wait until the 11th hour in Washington? Is it because they want to get it done right before lunch? 
In the week ahead, the Treasury market has three primary influences to drive the direction of rates. First will be the CPI number, with the headline expected to increase four-tenths of a percent month-over-month in August, and core seen up three-tenths of a percent. The second primary influence will be the retail sales numbers for the month of August that will be released on Thursday morning. And in the interim, the third and arguably more impactful influence will be the price action itself. And while this might sound needlessly glib, the fact of the matter is that the U.S. rates market remains in a period of consolidation. And as investors recalibrate expectations for the final few months of the year, we anticipate that the 112 to 142 range will continue to hold in 10-year yields as uncertainty regarding jobs growth as well as the overall health of the economy continues to dominate the macro narrative. As we consider the balance of 2021, we're retaining our year-end target for 10-year yields in a range of 125 to 135. That isn't remarkably different from where the market's trading at the moment, and given the current trading dynamic, it also allows for another attempt to push toward that 150 or even 160 level in 10-year rates, but we maintain that both the upper bound and the lower bound for 2021 have now been established. One of the more surprising developments in the Treasury market from our perspective is how the five-year sector has performed. We came into this year with a target for 10-year yields at 125 by year-end, but five-year yields remaining subdued and closer to 35 basis points. What we see now is that the expression of bond bearish events during the second half of this year has triggered belly-led sell-offs, which have brought five-year yields back to that 80 to 85 basis point range. We're targeting a 90 to 95 basis point range for fives by year-end, and this is simply a reflection of the fact that once tapering has been announced, the market will move even further into the mode of trading the liftoff rate hike. And if nothing else, another four months of progress through the pandemic will put the Fed's first rate hike that much closer, assuming that the Delta variant and the risk of future variants doesn't materially derail the recovery or the medium-term outlook. We've reached a point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with NFL season now underway, it strikes us that free agents always seem to be so expensive. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts.
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.